Hi, before we get started today, a quick announcement. The second annual Canadian Advisor Tech Expo is being put on by the Financial Planning Association of Canada this year on March 14th to 17th. If you are a Canadian financial advisor or in management or an executive or just interested in what advisor technology is out there, I highly recommend you sign up. Tickets are on sale at advisortechexpo.ca. And now on to today's show. Hello, and welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Sharin Arezi, founder and CEO of Next Step. Next Step is a company that advises fintechs on how to incorporate behavioral science into product development and marketing to be, frankly, more effective. And with that, here's my interview with Sharin. Sharin, thanks for taking the time today. Absolutely. Excited to be here, Jason. So Sharin Arezi of Next Step, tell us about Next Step. Yeah. So uh, Next Step is uh, what we call a behavioral design agency because we sit at this intersection of leveraging behavioral science and how we help our clients design uh, their marketing and product uh, uh, experiences for their clients. And ultimately, we're trying to help them uh, better understand um, how people are really making decisions about the brand or uh, so that they can ultimately drive better engagement or adoption uh, for their products and solutions. Excellent. So talk to me about the origin of this company. How did uh, it come to be? Yeah, absolutely. So my personal background is I'm not a marketeer, not a behavioral scientist. I'm actually an engineer by training and worked in tech for a number of years before starting Next Step. And uh, more recently, I was always looking to figure out how we can uh, create a more uh, data-driven way to help our clients with their marketing efforts and growth efforts. And uh, when I discovered behavioral science, actually through my husband, at the time he was running a series of sleep medicine clinics and they had the highest adherence rate in the nation to these really difficult sleep apnea treatment plants. And that really got me on a quest to try to understand what is behavioral science? How is it relevant? How can it be used in uh, improving outcomes uh, with uh, companies? And so that's really the work that we've been up to uh, most recently. And uh, we've had a lot of great success working with technology companies, bringing it to life. So what was the secret sauce of your husband's company? Was it just, <laughs> was it nudging? Was it just being polite? Is this the bedside manner effect? Like what's going on? Yeah, yeah. Um, so for him, actually, he literally had taken every single book that he could find from uh, like Cialdini's Influence, uh, mm. Economist, et cetera, and like literally was uh, rigorously applying them inside the business, inside their clinics, inside you know, how they uh, engage patients, et cetera. And they were kind of measuring more before and after effects of like uh, doing an intervention. So for them, it was just basically dumping a bunch of interventions at all at the same time. And over the span of a few years is how they were able to get that really high adherence rates. Yeah. So so basically, they did the favor of doing all the research for you. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> let's let's start off with some more basic questions. What is behavioral science? Yeah, absolutely. So behavioral science is what we call the study of how people really make decisions. I like to put that emphasis on the word really, because there's another field of study called economics that we've all heard about that also looks at decision-making and why that's really important, especially in the context of how we like market our products is that in traditional economics, we largely assume that the humans that we're dealing with on the other side are rational. And so if you simply give them more information about our products and solutions and more choices, they will do the rational thing. And as behavioral scientists, we're like, yeah, people can be rational, but there's actually other factors at play. So people's emotions, um, how an environment is designed both digitally uh, as well as offline, um, social factors, all of these actually influence us as humans. And so we really pay a lot of attention to what are those other factors that go into getting somebody to either adopt your product or change their behavior around your product? 
And we don't assume that people are always making rational decisions. So we lovingly like to say we think of the users on the other side a little bit more like Homer Simpson than Spock. And we're really trying to figure out how can we grease the way and make it easier for Homer Simpson uh, to do the right thing um, as opposed to relying that you know we have perfect humans on the other side. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. In contrast to the Austrian school where everything is rational, it's just where you need to make it's it's about that person's individual journey that leads to their version of rational decisions. So I could talk about these topics all day. But nevertheless, let's move on. So so okay, why is this important to startups? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's kind of two primary reasons, and I'm I'm gonna pin that especially in this economic climate with what's happening with startups. So I think the first thing that we're seeing with our clients is that they need to scale smarter, which means largely they are working with smaller budgets, smaller teams, they need to preserve um, their cash. And so they really need to be smart about their efforts and they can't really afford to like hack their way and get it wrong. They need to you know, make sure that um, they're having more wins than losses. So that's the first thing. And I can, once we get into that, I can explain how exactly behavioral science ensures that. And then the second thing that we see is they're stuck. So they've tried all the tools in their toolbox to like hack their way and they've kind of plateaued in terms of their metrics. They're not getting anywhere. And so they really need a different way of thinking around how to get that product adoption or engagement. And so those are kind of the two two primary ways that I see us coming in for our clients. And typically when we work with startups, we're helping them create lifts anywhere from 30% to 300% depending on where uh, the work is inside you know, their funnel. So we generally tend to have a kind of data-driven approach to how we're helping them uh, drive. Well, those, are some, those are some impressive numbers, 30 to 300%. I mean, but it, it just, it makes sense, right? This is a, this is part of the marketing of any business, right? It's, you know, there is some value proposition being brought to the table by said company. And you can deliver that in an efficient, effective, communicative manner that gets the right outcome. Or it can just completely futz the entire thing up, right? Like, you know, yeah. and there's no limit to the number of companies or ideas or businesses where the idea was wonderful, but the method of delivery was so irreparably flawed that it just went under. So I guess you're you're helping people avoid that inevitable conclusion of, well, you know, I have the better mousetrap, so therefore people will buy it. Mm, there's lots of better mousetraps. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think one example I like to give to hopefully bring this home on a very personal level is if you think of health, like our health, we all really know what it takes to be healthy, right? Eat your fruits and vegetables, exercise, drink water, et cetera. Yet how many of us skipped our workout this morning because we were binge watching Netflix last night? I'm like literally guilty of this. <laughs> and so you assume I had a workout <laughs> schedule this morning while I was watching Netflix last yeah. night. So I, I only fit half that criteria. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so really driving more knowledge, more information around the benefits of exercise or calorie counts of food, that's not what's going to get you out of bed uh, uh, or eating a healthier meal. And so behavioral science really operates well when it's trying to close the gap between what we know we should do and what we actually end up doing. And that's a lot of times what we're helping startups with, where they have a really great product and they're just not successful at figuring out how to frame it and kind of close that gap to get people on board. No, it makes a lot of sense. Again, it's just better method of effective distribution. It makes so much makes makes so much sense altogether. Right. So I mean you already gave me some examples of the value add. I mean, you know, 30, I think, you know, you had me at 30% lift. When you said 300% lift, it's like, okay, now yeah. that is that is almost starting to sound like it's uh, it, it's some sort of weird hustle online. But you know, if it's effective, <laughs> if you've proven it, if you, you know, 
you know, I'm not going to lose 30 pounds in 24 hours because because uh, the magic pill. <laughs> yeah. But nevertheless, it's you know, I, I I say that, but I also quietly because. I believe that to be possible in that, again, yeah. know, ineffective distribution versus effective distribution and communication are, are a world of difference. And I can see how that, that's actually possible. Although I'm sure you were quite happy to see those results and be like, this is my case study. Yes. Yes. So let's talk about the process, right? So you go in and talk to a company about what it is they're doing. Basically, and they decide that adopting a behavioral science approach to what it is they're doing is going to benefit them and they want to onboard with you. Talk to me about what the process looks like in terms of how you get involved and, and discover everything needs to be done. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we built a methodology, we call it the science of design, and we actually specifically built it for working with startups because we know startups need everything yesterday. Um, and so there, uh, you know, usually our engagements are three-month engagements where we come in, we figure out, okay, what's the key challenge that you have this quarter? And this could be, you know, we have a um, challenge around increasing our top of the funnel adoption, or we have drop-off in our sign-up flow, or we can't get people to adopt, uh, you know, a certain new feature we have. But we get really uncomfortably specific around, you know, what that challenge is and what behavior they're trying to change. And then at that point, we do kind of two buckets of things. The first thing is we find and execute on what we call are the just do's. So this is us coming in, doing an audit of how you're currently marketing, how uh, your product is, what your competitors are doing, and what are all the behavioral science opportunities that we see that you're not doing that we want to make sure right off the bat you're taking advantage of. And so think of this as kind of the low-hanging fruit um, the gaps that you have from a behavioral science perspective. And then we basically get down to like optimizing those very quickly so we can show results and, and have wins uh, very quickly. Then the second part is what we call the stickier part, the, the more challenging part. And so around that challenge, once we've kind of gotten done with the low-hanging fruit, now we're kind of doing a combination of qualitative and quantitative research to tackle and figure out, okay, how do I get that message? How do I frame it best to get somebody to adopt? Or how do I you know, reduce that drop-off that's happening? And think of this part as on the qual side, we're going out there and talking to a handful of people. So we're talking about like 10 or 15 people that's kind of in your audience. And what we're really trying to do is figure out these different behavioral science-backed ideas, which one of them has legs to it? Which one of them do we think is going to work for you? in your situation. And then at that point, one, once we have kind of a refined list of ideas, we basically test them at scale and market. So as an example, if it's like a marketing challenge, we might be, you know, running um, quant research on like, you know, paid social, Facebook, LinkedIn, email. If it's a product challenge, we might be doing an intervention, um, you know, and, you know, inside the product. But large, we're, we're testing different ideas and hypotheses side by side with actual prospects or users and then proving which one works and which one doesn't. And that's where kind of that data-driven approach comes where we can come back to you with a high degree of confidence and say like, hey, look, around getting people to adopt your product, when we use age milestones or the endowment effect or whatnot, we're proving that this works mm -hmm. radically better. So now let's figure out, okay, how else we can deploy it and so forth. So those kind of are the two big um, kind of building blocks of what we do. And the bonus uh, part is that, and we've actually just recently introduced this and we're finding our startups lo really love this, is in addition to that, we also do weekly behavioral science Q&As with our behavioral science team and the marketing or product team. Uh, basically, whatever marketing or product challenge is on their desk that week that they're working on, 
we're going in there and basically kind of giving them that behavioral science lens of don't do this, do this. Here's a way to kind of refine it. And that really helps them kind of start thinking like behavioral scientists and how they can optimize that work uh, to begin with. Um, And then finally, every three months, we culminate our efforts by doing a quarterly playbook where we go in and we say, okay, team, here's the big challenge that you had. Here's all the ways that we were able to prove what's working and what's not working. And here's all the ways that other departments can take advantage of it. So we bring in the marketing team, the product team, sometimes the executive team uh, to really disseminate the learnings and and make sure that they're taking advantage of it inside the organization. Excellent. I mean, so, you know, what you're really talking about in a lot of ways is more directed A-B testing, right? Like we've all heard these stories about how like Google tested like 600 shades of blue to see what was most effective. But I mean, that's that's a lot of effort, right? Like (laughs) 600 data points is a lot of effort. And I think being able to, you know, what you're doing is basically saying, you know, instead of feeling around in the dark, to figure out like every possible permutation of what you should be testing to see to, to, you know, to make it more effective. We're looking at every spot on the page where that call to action button can go or the terminology and and doing all that, which takes an enormous amount of time. You're zeroing in their focus based on actual science and saying, okay, yeah, like let's not, let's not trust 6,000 shades of blue. Let's, let's, let's look at this part of the spectrum because this corresponds to feelings of whatever in 80% of the population, whatever, you know, just using that as an example. I loved, I love that you actually picked up on that, the shades of blue, because that's actually something that we call out. So I think what's really maybe differentiated about the, what we do in our testing relative to like just standard AB testing is when you do that standard A-B testing and you find out that shade of blue works better than the shade of green, that just allows you to optimize only that interface. But in contrast with behavioral science, basically what we're testing is different behavioral science-backed ideas around how and why people are making decisions about your brand. So these ideas, once we prove something works, they're very portable in nature. So like if I can prove that people are much more motivated by preventing losses and gains around adopting your product, I can take that finding all the way through the LTV of your product and figure out, okay, how else can I infuse it? So they tend to be really, really portable in nature. And then Mm -hmm. the second thing that I call out is that our starting point for the testing is all principles and ideas that have already been proven out in research and academia. So Mm -hmm. that's why we get these really high lifts is because our starting point, our baseline are things that have already been proven out around how people make decisions. So we're much more likely to have success with it. And it's just frankly a matter of, okay, which one works in your scenario? Does that make sense? Yeah. That totally makes sense. I mean, it's the difference between, you know, going back to the blue example, it's going back to the, it's the difference between not knowing where to start and having the 600 shades versus having someone who has said, no, here's all the research that has been done on people's emotion or click rate responses or, or, you know, feelings of, of importance, whatever the, whatever the variables are. And, you know, you're going to get the highest level of engagement between, you know, this palette and this, this part and this part. So let's not waste time testing the yep. rest of these. Let's figure out, I'd say if anything, it's you're taking the approach from this, you know, very big shotgun approach to not quite a laser, but you know, you're right. getting you're getting into a very, yeah. very you're, you're telling them to narrow the field, which 
which, hey, it's time, money, it's development cycles. It is all kinds of things that, again, he said startups. Startups are, if, they're one, if there's one thing a startup is, is, is strain for resources, right? As it should be, because yeah. essentially even the highly funded one, talent is expensive, their time is expensive, every minute every minute counts. So that, that helps. Do you give me some specific examples of clients and startups and how you help them basically adopt these processes? And I would say, you know, focus in, if you can give us at least one example of one where it's like, what was the really radically like, oh my God, they they never saw this coming. And this was the big shift that we had happened. And this was the impact we had. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I'd, I'd add one other thing that I'll say is that aside from the, the principles, it's also the industry. Like within fintech, for example, we see a lot of the same common challenges and the same common fixes. <laughs> and so that also kind of gives us a little bit of a leg up. So um, I'll give you an example of a client that we've been working with. Um, so they are um, basically earned wage access program. And what that means is that mm. they allow employees to kind of borrow from their paycheck from their employees. So they will go into like large employers, like say Walmart, then try to get their employees on board. So, and these are basically people that like say need to borrow say $200 to, you know, um, make ends meet or, you know, they have a you know healthcare bill, et cetera, that they need to take care of. So the first challenge that they kind of came up to us, and this is by the way, again, common with a lot of our FinTech clients is that we might start off at the top of the funnel. So their big first challenge was like, hey, we need to increase adoption for this program at the top of the funnel and get people to install our app. And when we um, kind of did that audit assessment, we very clearly see uh, saw, again, a common pattern that we see with fintech co- companies where in their ads that they were using on like Facebook and social media, et cetera, they were really focused on showing the features of the app. So this goes back to kind of that Spock Homer thing where when we assume that if we simply give people more information about our features, that that's going to what it take, that's what it takes to get adoption. And then the intervention that we did for them was actually some of our just do's and best practices where we went in and figured out a way to weave in what we call a narrative bias, which is kind of storytelling and then social proof, which is humans tendencies to rely on others to drive their behavior. Um, and so we basically picked up real people, real stories, a real use cases and shifted the direction of their ads from feature-based to storytelling and social proof. And essentially overnight, we were able to increase their top of the funnel sold by about 90%. So this overnight. is like just, wow. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So well, and then, I mean, like with nothing more than just like changing the ads really. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's two takeaways for me there. One, the social proof concept, which is absolutely like, you know, there's a reason why Google reviews and Yelp and, you know, all these in review sites exist. It's because, hey, if I'm going to commit to doing something, even if it's, just, even if it's a low lift commit, right? Like I want to know I'm not wasting my time, right? You know, if I, how many, I don't know what the stats are on one star apps getting downloaded in the app store, but I'm going to guess it's not very good. So you have that. So, you know, you need, you need the social proof, right? To say that this is worth your time. And the second piece is, is that, you know, it's no surprise to me that, hey, let's demonstrate feature sets, right? Because respectfully, this is, what, what do you expect from engineers, right? Like, right. You know, <laughs> totally. they think they think in feature sets, what's the selling point? Here's the 12th thing this app does that are, that are super awesome. Show like that value. When people don't really care to some degree, right? Yes. Like they care about exactly. like, I just want to know what the end payoff is for me, right? Like, Absolutely. it's nice that you, you know, it's nice that the car has got this lane assistance, whatever, but like, oh, you're telling me I'm not going to get into an accident if I fall asleep at the wheel. That's what I care about. I don't care how Absolutely. you get there, right? Absolutely. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think as humans, I mean, part of the reason that it works is that as humans, we've evolved 
to remember stories. We haven't evolved to remember random facts and figures and features. So yeah, so that's like basically an example of kind of doing the just do's and best practices. Uh, and then for that specific cl- a client, once we kind of fix the adoption challenge, and this is again, a common thing that we see with our fintech clients is that, uh, you know, they get really good at getting people to adopt their core product. And then inevitably they have to expand beyond that product. And so they, they need to like build yeah, exactly, new features, et cetera. And so for them, uh, they had uh, basically created this new savings feature. And so, you know, obviously they started off based on this borrowing feature and now they wanted to kind of get people to save so that they're um, ultimately improving the overall well-being of these people. And basically they had a pretty dismal adoption rate. I think about 16% or so, if I uh, recall correctly. And then when we did that same kind of audit and looked at the environment in which they were asking people to kind of sign up for this new saving feature, one thing that became clear to us was basically when they were asking people to sign up was after they had already signed up for the first program. And so Mm -hmm. to us, that is like, you know, the challenge here from a behavioral science perspective is that at the start of your sign up, you have people at high motivation. They're in this kind of activated hot state. And now you're at the very end asking them for, you know, something else. And so motivations like radically dropped. So one of the things that we did in this case is um, another really well-known behavioral science principle. It actually kind of put a lot of behavioral science on the map, which is um, this thing called the power of default. And the general thesis there is yes. that as humans, we're lazy. So we're not going to go in and change our iPhone settings or whenever we're faced with a difficult decision, we're actually more likely to not make a decision. So we basically kind of looked at their entire flow and figure out, okay, how can we actually default people properly into the savings feature? And so we basically kind of put the savings feature within the sign-up flow for their earned wage access program. And then we also defaulted people to a savings amount. For them, their North Star goal was to get people to save at least a dollar. So we did a couple of interventions on the interfaces. And then ultimately, as we kind of shifted this um, using uh, the behavioral science principles, we were able to increase the number of people that saved at least a dollar by about 73%. So again, I think the whole goal here is where can we introduce these very subtle shifts and nudges either in the message or in the sign-up flow where we're not like radically disrupting anything, but like just easing the way for people to take on the right behavior. Yeah, and it can't be emphasized enough the the impact of that. I mean, the entire onboarding flow is so vital to this. And, you know, I think you've seen the stats, like, you know, for every successive question, the drop-off rate just continues to increase exponentially over time, right? And if you don't make, if you, and even when you place the data, I remember one company I spoke to in particular, which was a robo-advisor, where they had originally started off asking for personal information, including the, you know, the tax ID for the client on the first page. And they moved that tax ID to the last page. And guess what happened? Their adoption went through the roof. Why? Because, oh, wait a sec, I got to put something sensitive in here? And not so sure. Versus, oh, now I'm pot committed because I've done all this stuff and I see benefit. And, you know, that's for the power, that's for the power of defaults. I mean, the heck, you know, Taylor won a Nobel Prize in part because of this, right? And then his work on, on, on default options within retirement accounts, right? So hugely, hugely important. And I think, I guess, and I see it again, you get so caught up, you know, the companies get so caught up in building the widget and thinking it's awesome that they don't think about the fact that guess what? 
all onboarding is a pain in the butt. All right. onboarding is a pain in the butt. All I'll make that decision. Every effort, you know, I, I, you know, one of the first things I discovered when I got into my business was it's a lot harder to make people move an inch than you would ever think. So being, yep. you know, how do you motivate them? So, you know, you're right at the core of what that means. So not surprised. So yeah. Any other uh, interesting examples to share with us? Or actually, you know what? Here, here's, uh, let's take that. Let's take that back. Here's yeah. one. You know, in all your endeavors in behavioral science, is there an experience that was most surprising to you, where the result was just not what you expected whatsoever? Hmm, great question. Well, I will say that it is very common for us to assume that one principle is going to work and then have another principle work. <laughs> and I think that actually is exactly why we do the testing, so that we're not, frankly, going with anybody's. Uh, judgment or kind of gut uh, gut idea. But I will say to me, I think the my favorite part of doing this stuff is, and this is actually a challenge that we see with our clients is that a lot of times say the executive team has ideas around what's going to work versus what's not going to work. And then the team basically spends tons of cycles going back and forth, mm-hmm. kind of battling that out. And in our scenario, when we work with our clients and you know the team has an idea, we're like, great, that's going to be one of our hypotheses. And so this example, uh, w- which was really interesting, we worked with an ed tech company here and they actually had really great adoption for the core product. So they were in about 60% of the schools nationwide, but they were really struggling to get retention um, and get people to to continue using their solution. They'd largely been very successful at scaling uh, based on using a lot of aspirational messaging. So, you know, we're here to like level the playing field in education, et cetera. And so when we got ready- Change the world through better educational- One one impression algorithm at a time. Thank you. Exactly. You nailed it. Exactly. For anyone who's watched Silicon Valley, you know, season one, final episode. Totally. uh, I'm on on, like the third round of watching that because it's just like so It's so good. so that episode in particular, and I, you know, I always think back to that one about like every, you know, literally every other fintech website I've ever seen. It's like, okay, thanks, you know, you're, yeah. <laughs> you're yeah. question. I'm gonna sorry, interrupt. Continue. Yes. No, no, totally. Um, yeah. So I think in that scenario, we actually had I think four hypotheses, if I'm not mistaken. So one hypothesis was we just kept the executives, which is like just use aspirational language and see if that gets people to stick around. Our second one was um, based on our interviews that we'd done, where we saw that based on their audience, they look to other people like that same social proof. They look to other school districts to see what they're doing to drive their behavior. And so we use kind of social proof messaging. And then another issue, which is a common issue we see with most of our tech clients is what we call a cognitive fluency challenge, which goes back to, we don't know how to explain our solution clearly. So we introduce a ton of jargon. Our hypothesis there was that they're not explaining their solution clearly. So people don't see how they could use it well. And so they don't renew. And then our fourth hypothesis was a behavioral science principle called the endowment effect, which is this idea that as humans, we basically tend to overvalue what we own already. So this is why we have a hard time parting with our homes and cars, because we think it's worth more than what the the market is willing to pay. And then in this scenario, because people technically already owned the software they'd already bought, and we were just trying to get them to renew, uh, we basically use the endowment effect to tap into the fact that, hey, you've already invested in this tech. And you're not really using it. You, you know, basically, you bought yourself a Porsche and you're driving it like a Corolla. So you ignore the um, sunk cost. You ignore the sunk cost fallacy. Kidding. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, and so our thought was that um, social proof is going to win because we knew that we'd heard that there's a strong influence of really understanding and mirroring what other school districts are doing. And actually, to our surprise, to some extent, uh, the endowment effect across the board, across all the metrics that we measured, worked the best. And then. 
we were able to, you know, showcase that like the aspirational messaging wasn't performing um, as well. So I think just the nice thing of testing, there's no ego in it. Sometimes we're right, sometimes we're wrong, but let's let's put it out to test and see what the data comes back with. So, I mean, you have to geek out about different uh, cognitive behavior issues like the endowment effect and bank bias. And, you know, as you're talking about, I thought about countless cases where I saw that. It's like, wait, wait a minute, you wouldn't pay the amount of money to buy the thing you currently have now that you wouldn't sell. Like, it's just, it's it's for those, for anyone who hasn't read that, please check out um, any number of books on this subject by Richard Thaler or by Dale Kahneman. And, yeah. you know, the best part about it is that I love how Kahneman admits that after years of studying all this stuff, he's no better at dealing with this personally in his own life than he that he ever was before absolutely we we are victim to the same bias like it's funny we joke around about it in terms of like we have to literally design interventions for ourselves knowing what how we're actually getting tricked by our own brains so yeah i will say i do feel and maybe this is arrogant of me to say i do feel i'm actually pretty good at, at actually recognizing this and trying to combat it simply because I spend most of my day combating the, the, my client's behavior around that, that I recognize their <laughs> yeah. behavior in myself. And, yeah. and it's like, okay, so this is, which, which I will say causes any amount of frustration and like, hyper-rationalization with, with, with people in my yeah. life, be their friends, family, or business partners, but it is what it is. So Shereen, you mentioned uh, when we started talking offline that you have some sort of special offer for the listeners of the podcast. You care to share? Yeah, absolutely. So you asked me what, what would be my ultimate wish if I could wave a magic wand. And I said, I want more people to see this for their organization. So in that spirit, we have a special offer. We call it the try it before you buy it, uh, which is uh, basically... We have an offer limited to three startups per month where we will do weekly consults with our behavioral science team uh, for them for one month. So really it's our opportunity to kind of get in and help them figure out how they can uh, leverage behavioral science. So if your listeners mention that they've uh, heard about us uh, through your podcast and fill out our online form on our website, which is hellonextstep.com. That's hellonextstep.com. Go to our contact page. I mentioned you heard us um, on the podcast and you're interested in the try it before you buy it. I will definitely see if you qualify for that. Excellent. Really appreciate it. So before we wrap up, there's three questions I ask everybody to end on a positive note. The first one is, is if you had one wish for something to change in your company or the industry as a whole, what would it be? Oh, wow. I think my one wish is if I could get more people to actually experience this stuff firsthand for themselves, that would be it. Because I think sometimes you have to just see this work inside your own company. And so if I could wave a magic wand and kind of give people the opportunity just to see how this could work, um, that would be that would be my wish. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, you're either going you're gonna to learn this, you're going to fail because you fail to learn it. And it's also interesting, too, because I think, I mean, you must have seen it, too, how a lot of companies, especially in the tech field, I think they will stumble upon these some of these realizations out of luck and, mm-hmm. you know, attribute it to their greatness in A-B testing or whatever it is, failing to realize that it was obvious to anyone who had studied the issue. Right. Does that yeah. ever happen to you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I will say this. The good news is that there are certain things like, you know, storytelling, social proof, these things, they've steeped into, you know, how we do our marketing, et cetera. So that, to me, is like the really good news to see this stuff being deployed. So I'm all, all in favor of it. I think the challenge, though, is sometimes knowing what's going to work and what's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> in a particular situation so excellent no it's it's well that's the thing is it still needs to be it's not guaranteed it still needs to be tested in a live fire environment yeah. and it could be any number of variables including the target market or whatever else it might be that impact the actual end results so that makes a lot of sense okay. second question i have for you is what's been the biggest challenge in the company where it is today so we spent a couple a bunch of cycles internally figuring out our own um target market fit as far as like what are the types of companies that are going to be a fit for this behavioral science work and so 
Uh, we spent a couple of years on that, like just kind of spanning different sides of organizations, different groups, et cetera. And so it took us a while to kind of land on startups and specifically in, inside the uh, marketing and product teams and like what stage of startup this makes sense for, et cetera. So yeah, it makes sense to I me. Mean, you're, you're, you're finding your place in the world, right? So <laughs> that makes sense. Totally. And the last question is what excites you the most about what it is you're working on and keeps you getting up in the morning to keep on fighting the good fight. Yeah. Um, so I jokingly say if I win the lotto, I'd still be doing this on an island, but only on an island <laughs> uh, with, with the Mai Tai. I think what gets me up, I, I, I am a big believer in the work. And I love just seeing that we are able to make such big dramatic shifts with such small nudges. Uh, to me, that like is just the elegance of the work out of there of, of figuring out how do you create a big impact uh, with you know such simple interventions. So that's really what gets me out of bed in the day. And like, I want everybody to be doing this. <laughs> I want total. I want total world domination. <laughs> <laughs> well, your ambition knows no bounds, so I should commend you on. So, uh, so absolutely, that was again. We could have geeked out about different definitions, and maybe one day I'll do an episode like that. But otherwise, I'd very much like to thank you, uh, Shereen, for taking the time to come on the show and talk about uh, what it is you do. Absolutely, my pleasure, Jason. Great connecting with you, and uh, hope to stay in touch. So that was today's episode with Shereen Razi of Next Step. Hope you enjoyed that. And like I said, if you are interested in anything we talked about, there is a wonderful list of books out there on behavioral finance, which are just utterly fascinating. And you might get offended by some of the stuff that you get called out for doing yourself, but nevertheless, it might actually help you correct that behavior. Maybe. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever is your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.